Okay, we will start again the way we did last night with the verse of homage to the Buddha. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato Arahato Sammasambuddhasa Okay, so we've been studying the Mahamangala Sutta, the great discourse on blessings. And last night we just went over the opening paragraph of the Sutta where the Buddha is dwelling at Savati and then in the middle of the night, a deity, a deva, comes to see the Buddha and then asks him, he says that there's a great debate has taken place amongst human beings and devas about what constitutes a blessing. And so all of us are seeking safety and security, seeking a life of good fortune, So he asked the Buddha, please declare to us, explain, what is the Mangalamuttamang? What is the highest or supreme blessing? And then the Buddha will pronounce the rest of the sutta, which proceeds through about 10 verses in which he covers some 38 blessings. And these verses and the blessings within them are highlighted highlighted just by usually just one word or one phrase. But when we take them all together, there are 38 blessings. And when we look at them, we could see that they constitute what I would call a complete plan of life, proceeding from the initial stages of getting the proper direction or orientation in life through the fulfillment of one's family and social responsibilities right up to the development of inward virtues and then the attainment or the practice of the liberating path culminating in liberation. And so I would say that, you know, looking at these 38 blessings as a whole, that they are conducive to the three kinds of benefit that the Buddha's teaching is said to lead to. So in the commentarial analysis, it said that there are three kinds of benefits that come from living or practicing according to the Dhamma. Okay, so there's well-being and happiness here and now, that which is to be experienced in this present life itself through a life of contentment, a life of harmonious relationships with others, a life through which one can contribute to one's own inner development and to the well-being and happiness of others in one's various circles of relationships. And then this well-being and happiness here and now is seen as forming the foundation 
for well-being and happiness in future lives. That is, if one is not going to, if one doesn't yet have the capacity, the potential to realize the ultimate goal in this very life itself. According to the Buddha's teaching, this life or the stream of consciousness does not come to a complete end with the physical death of the body. But the Buddha clearly, repeatedly, emphatically teaches that this life that we're living now is just one link in a beginningless chain of lives, a chain that goes back to time without beginning. And this life that we're living now is a stepping stone to the life that's going to come in the future. So the Buddha, as I said, very clearly and emphatically teaches the doctrine of, well, it's not a doctrine, but it's a principle of rebirth, repeated existence, that we go from birth, growth, old age, death, which will be followed by a new birth elsewhere, a new life. And what governs the particular destination that we take in the life to come is the karma, the volitional activities that we engage in in this life. And so our life now is the product of our deeds in previous existences. And this life, the karma that we do in this life, will become a determinative factor for our future life. And so if we want to secure for ourselves well-being and happiness in a future life, then we should live in accordance with Dharma, fulfilling the principles of blessings laid down in the Mangala Sutta. And then the ultimate well-being and happiness, this is called the supreme well-being and happiness, the Paramatta Hita Sukha. This is the attainment of liberation the realization of Nibbana. And so when we look at the Mangala Sutta, we can see that it covers all three of these types of benefits. And looking at these 38 blessings from another angle, we could see that they also bring four types of benefits. Two of these are internal, One is that by living in accordance with these blessings, we cultivate and develop our inner virtues. These practicing these blessings is a way of transforming our character. So gradually, sometimes even imperceptibly, by practicing these blessings, our character undergoes subtle shifts, subtle subtle transformations, so that instead of being a person who is overwhelmed and afflicted by the mental defilements, we start to purify ourselves and bring into being, bring to manifestation within us, within ourselves a multitude of wholesome, virtuous qualities, qualities which make us a source of blessings and benefits for others. So that's one kind of personal benefit is the 
unfolding and manifestation in ourselves of wholesome, virtuous qualities, personal virtues. The second personal benefit from fulfilling these blessings is the development of wisdom, the expansion of our knowledge and wisdom. Of course, mentioned here as the factors contributing to wisdom, we have such things as much learning, abundant learning, listening to the Dharma, discussing the Dharma, and then practicing intensive meditation so that we gain insight into the Four Noble Truths. So in this way, we develop first knowledge, and then based on knowledge and understanding, wisdom comes into being. So these are two kinds of personal benefits that come from fulfilling the 38 mangalas or blessings. Then there are two kinds of benefits which operate on a wider scale. One is that these blessings or mangalas are conducive to social or communal harmony. That is, they bring harmony within the family, harmony in our personal relationships with others, harmony and say, mutual concern within the community. And then the fourth benefit, the second one operating on a social scale, is a little bit maybe utopian <laughs> or idealistic, but if a large number of people were to follow these blessings, and if the state, the administer, administrators of the state, the leaders of the state, were to live in accordance with these blessings, then we would have a well-governed state which is conducive to justice and equity for everyone. Okay, now what I've done over the past few weeks is to take each of these blessings as a kind of heading and then collect numbers of passages from the suttas that illustrate these different blessings. And so as we go through the Mangala Sutta, there's a kind of, I've built up a kind of commentary on it by taking other textual passages which help to illuminate the meaning of these blessings. And so in this way, just looking at the Mangala Sutta and then taking each of these phrases and expressions gives us a kind of gateway into a much wider range of suttas so that we can see how the themes of the Mangala Sutta are illustrated and emphasized and elaborated in many different discourses by the Buddha. Is everybody able to say, is this degree of magnification sufficient? Okay, let's boost it. Yeah, that's only 100%. This better?
Okay, the way we did last night, I'll recite each verse in Pali. And then you phrase by phrase, and then you recite after me. And then we'll go into first the translation and then elaboration. So we begin. Now the Buddha is replying to that deity's request for an explanation of the supreme blessing. So we start with a sevana chabalanam. Panditanancha sevana. Pujacha pujaniyanam. Etang mangalamuttamang. Okay, so the word sevana means association with, especially suggesting association in the sense of following somebody, taking somebody as one's guide or leader or model. And so the negation of this is asevana, which means not associating with, in the sense that one doesn't take this person or type of person has one's guide and model. So this is a sevanachabalanam, not associating with foolish people. And then this is balanced on the positive side, panditanancha sevana, associating with following, taking as one's model those who are wise. And the Pali word pandita here, you might recognize this, it's been absorbed into English and then given a somewhat corrupted sense, they speak about the pundit. Usually on the TV news interviews, news programs, somebody is the authority or an expert on national affairs, they call him a pundit. But the word actually derives from Pali, Sanskrit word meaning a learned and wise person. And so this is the person that one should associate with. And then comes puja chapujiniyanam, which here it's honoring those worthy of honor or showing veneration to those who are worthy of veneration. And so the Buddha says, in a way, this is a phrase that has to be interpreted, not taken too literally. He says, this is the highest blessing, but it's really the first step in the unfolding series of blessings. And if we consider, if you remember, I gave out the, gr- the ground plan of the Mangala Sutta. And so the way I understand the sequence of the sutta, that the first verse here is setting up what I call the proper orientation. Because if we're going to live a life that will be a source of blessings for oneself and enabling one to be a source of blessings for others, one has to start by setting out in the right direction 
And for this, one needs the proper orientation. And what gives us proper orientation, that particular inner quality that's the essential starting point for leading a wholesome, beneficial, admirable, worthy life is a quality which I call, or which I don't call, it's it's a common word, but the word, the key word here is discretion. And what is discretion? It is, the way I understand it, it's the ability to distinguish through proper insight and understanding, the ability to distinguish what is really bad and what is good, what is a worthy aim in life, what is an unworthy aim of life, what is unwholesome action, what is wholesome action, what is wrong and what is right. And so when we start out as children, it's essential, or if we have children, bringing them up, it's important to instill in them this quality of discretion, this ability to distinguish wrong from right, good from bad. And the way one develops discretion, well, basically two factors that go into the acquiring of this capacity for discretion. One is the ability to reflect wisely and consider carefully within oneself. But the second contributing factor are the people that we associate with the people that we take as our model and our guides. So if we, you know, especially when we're young, our character is very much like that of you know, the lizard chameleon, which is able to change its color according to the environment in which it's situated. So if it's amongst green leaves, it turns green. If it's in brown, on the brown earth, it will turn brown. So just as a chameleon changes its color according to the background against which it is located, so our way of thinking, way of evaluating things, even our way of viewing the world is very much influenced by the people that we associate with. So this is why at the very outset, the Buddha says, you know, the beginning point is not to associate with foolish people, but to associate with the wise. And I've even like noticed this, even in myself, after years of being a monk, you know, you might think that all monks are of excellent, wonderful qualities, noble characters, but I remember a period when I was living in Sri Lanka, like there was one monk that I was friendly with, and he would always be looking around sort of at other monks and criticizing the other monks, pointing out all of the faults of the other monks. This one is very sloppy the way he does things. This one talks too much. This one has done this, done that. And I noticed when I would associate with him, then I start to pick up that extra critical mind looking out at everybody and finding their faults. 
And so I thought that it would be wiser for me. Of course, sometimes we're thrown together, so we have to associate. But to keep a little distance from that monk. And when he speaks bad about others, that I shouldn't join in and start showing that I'm just as perceptive as he is, and that I can find his, his faults in others just the way he can. Okay, so I want to now look at some of the texts that are mentioned. That relate to this topic. Okay, I've assembled a number of texts. We could just sort of run through them to see how first the Buddha explains the foolish person. You know, maybe now we don't like to label a person, this one is a fool, but the Pali word bala, the original sense is a child. So you consider this a childlike person or an immature person. And so the Buddha says that one who possesses three qualities should be known as a fool. What are these three? Bodily misconduct, verbal misconduct, and mental misconduct. Okay, this text also basically echoes the same point, that the fool is one who speaks, who thinks badly, speaks badly, and acts badly. And so because the fool thinks badly, speaks badly, and acts badly, then wise people are able to observe that person and know that this one is a fool, a bad person. And then what are the qualities that mark one as a wise person? Bodily good conduct, verbal good conduct, and mental good conduct. So one who possesses these is known as a wise person. Again, in the next sutta, the wise person is one who thinks well, speaks well, that means in wholesome ways, and acts well. And so it's because the wise person speaks, thinks, and acts in such a way that wise people can know of him. This one is a wise person. Okay, this is an interesting sutta, which distinguishes, which lays out how does one distinguish between the foolish person and a wise person. And it does so by distinguishing two aspects of any possible course of action. One is whether that action is disagreeable or unpleasant to do, or on the other hand, whether it's agreeable and pleasant to do. The second pair is whether the action is one that we can foresee will be harmful or, in contrast, whether it will be beneficial. Okay, so there are some actions which are disagreeable to do and that will, we can foresee will be proved to be harmful. So this kind of action, whether one is foolish or a wise person, both of them will avoid an action like this. But next, there is 
the deed that's disagreeable to do, but which will prove to be beneficial in the future. So in this case, the Buddha says, one can understand who is a fool and who is a wise person, because the fool will not consider that the disagreeable action will prove beneficial. And so the fool will avoid engaging in that disagreeable action, even though it will be beneficial in the future. But the wise person will reflect in that way. And so the wise person will do the deed that's disagreeable, even though will avoid the deed that's disagreeable because he foresees that it will be ultimately beneficial. Then we come to the converse case where there's the deed that's agreeable to do, but that will prove harmful. So you want to go out drinking and having a good time a night out on, on the town. So this is something which for ordinary people, it will be enjoyable, pleasurable, but it can prove to be harmful. So here we can again distinguish between the fool and the wise person, because the fool will engage in that deed which is agreeable, even though it proves harmful, whereas the wise person will reflect and will avoid that deed, because he knows that avoiding that deed will prove beneficial. And then the deed that's agreeable to do and proves beneficial, both are likely to in, indulge, to engage in that deed. And one way, you know, some of these ways of distinguishing the fool and the wise person may be are a little bit extreme and outside our range of immediate experience. You know, if we keep company with fairly good people, we don't meet people who are going to be like hunters, fisher, fish, fishermen, who kill beings, who are thieves. But what kind of qualities do we see in our day-to-day -day interactions that might help us distinguish who is a foolish person and who is a wise person? One factor when I was reflecting on this that came to my mind as the quality of a foolish person, <laughs> and this is a person who always thinks that they know everything and thinks that their opinion is always right and they're never willing to accept, to consider a contrary opinion and never willing to admit that anything that they have that they have done might be wrong. Now, I think if you reflect on the people in your um, circle of acquaintances, you are probably able to think of people like that. And we have a term for this in Buddhism. It's called grasping one's own opinion, holding on to it tightly, and relinquishing it with difficulty. Okay, so what is the reason for avoiding wrong, the association with fools, and for 
cultivating association with wise people. Okay, so the Buddha provides the reason in several suttas. He says, in this sutta, he says, persons are twofold. Those to be associated with and those not to be associated with. So why is this said? Okay, if one knows of a person when I associate with this person, unwholesome qualities increase in me and wholesome qualities decline. One should not associate with such a person. So this is like the case that I mentioned in my own personal experience when I was associating with this monk back in Sri Lanka who's always speaking critically of others. Then I see within myself that tendency to become hypercritical, hypercritical, and even sarcastic towards others starts to develop. But when I avoid that person, then that hypercritical mind, that super judgmental mind subsides, and I'm able to be more tolerant and more respectful towards others. Okay, so when one sees that unwholesome qualities increase and wholesome qualities decline. One should not associate with such a person. But if one knows of a person, when I associate with this person, unwholesome qualities decline and wholesome qualities increase, then one should associate with such a person. Okay, then from the Dhammapada, we see some further benefits of associating with a good person. This is especially the kind of person who that one might take as a teacher or as a spiritual guide. So here, the verse says that if one finds a man, or this is, I'm taking an old translation. Let me make it gender neutral. Okay. <laughs> okay, so if one finds a person who points out faults and who reproves, then one should follow such a wise and sagacious person as one would a guide to hidden treasures. It is always better and never worse to cultivate such an association. And then on, from the standpoint of the teacher or guide, his task is to admonish one, to instruct one, and to shield one from wrong. So when one chooses a teacher and comes under the guidance of a teacher, it doesn't mean that it's always going to be the relationship a bed of, a bed of roses. Because if a teacher is doing his or her duty or function as a teacher, they will examine one's character, find one's faults, and point out one's faults in order to help one to overcome them. And I remember my experience with my first Buddhist teacher. This was when I was a graduate student in Claremont, California, in Claremont Graduate School. I had met a Buddhist monk from Vietnam and I became friends with him, and then he became my first Buddhist teacher. And he found out 
perhaps through interactions or even just through a sense of intuition, that I would get angry very easily, very quickly. (laughs) And we wound up living together in a small house in Claremont, and he would do things like deliberately (laughs) to make me get angry. (laughs) And when I would come stomping into his room (laughs) to vent my anger, he said, didn't you want to follow the path of meditation? How are you going to meditate if you get angry so easily? And so by continually pointing out, doing things to provoke my anger and then pointing out the anger, it helped me to see you know, this trait that I didn't even realize within myself or that I took to be just quite normal and natural like this is our human way of behaving, is to get angry. But when it's pointed out to me, sort of like through a mirror, and I see it, then it helps gradually first to become acquainted with that, those traits, and then to work on cultivating the appropriate practices to overcome them. But if we don't have anybody who's going to point them out to us, if the person that we take as the teacher is always very gentle and kind and accommodating, then we won't be able to see our faults, then we can't eliminate them. Ah, this is interesting. Okay, this speaks about three kinds of persons found in the world, the person not to be associated with, the person to be associated with, and the person to be associated with and serve with honor and respect. So here, you see, the the text makes a qualification. So the person not to be associated with wants to be associated with and followed. This is the person who's inferior to oneself in sila in virtuous behavior, in samadhi, concentration and wisdom, such a person should not be associated with, followed and served, except out of sympathy and compassion. So in our relationships with people, it doesn't mean that if we regard somebody as being foolish, we completely shun them. But once we develop a certain stability in our practice, a certain degree of progress, then we can associate with them out of sympathy and compassion in order to help that foolish person emerge from their inferior behavior and, and, and from their misdeeds and to establish them in the good. But while we're still in a relatively early stage in our development, we shouldn't immediately assume to ourselves the ability to lift others up and to establish them at our own level. Okay, then the person to be associated with and followed, this is a person who's roughly similar to oneself in good behavior, concentration and wisdom. And so for what reason? 
because we're, since we're similar in these qualities, then we will be able to discuss them and our discussion will flow on smoothly between us and we'll feel at ease. Okay, then the kind of person to be associated with, followed and served with honor and respect. This is the person who is superior to oneself in behavior, concentration and wisdom. And so the reason for associating with that person is because in this way, one will, by associating with that person and receiving their guidance, one will be able to cultivate and eventually to fulfill the qualities of good behavior, concentration, and wisdom. Okay, and here we have an interesting sutta which shows us that right association is taken as the foundation or starting point for the entire process that will either keep us continuing to revolve within the cycle of bondage to continue to flounder within the ocean of ignorance and suffering, or by developing right association, this becomes the starting point for the entire process that will culminate in realization and liberation. So here the Buddha says that when you don't associate with good persons, that is, if you continue to associate with the fools or the bad persons, then you don't get to hear the good dharma. When you don't hear the dharma, then you don't develop faith in the dharma, you don't learn how to practice, or rather you continue to reflect and to think carelessly, you don't have the chance to develop mindfulness and clear comprehension, you don't learn restraint of the sense faculties. You continue to behave according to the three kinds of misconduct, misconduct of body, speech, and mind. And these nourish the five hindrances. The five hindrances are what sustain ignorance. And so in this way, there is nutriment for ignorance. And in this way, one, one's ignorance continues to flourish. But just in the opposite way, when, whoops, when you associate with good persons, with people of superior virtue, concentration, and wisdom, then you get to hear the proper Dharma. When you hear the Dharma and respond to it positively, then faith arises, trust or confidence in the Dharma then one, by listening to the Dharma, one learns how to reflect and to think carefully and accurately. Then one learns how to cultivate mindfulness and clear comprehension. One develops restraint of the sense faculties. One practices the three kinds of good conduct. These before, serve as the foundation for the four foundations of mindfulness. 
the four foundations of mindfulness, nourish the seven factors of enlightenment, and then the seven factors of enlightenment, nurture accurate knowledge, correct knowledge, and liberation. And so all of these, whether it be ignorance, or true knowledge and liberation emerge from the people that we associate with. So it's for this reason that in another sutta, the Buddha has spoken about the importance of, we have the Pali term Kalyana Mita, which means good friendship. So the Buddha says one should develop good friendship. There was one occasion, maybe many of you have heard this sutta before, when Venerable Ananda came to the Buddha and said, Bhante, so far as I understand, good friendship is one half of the spiritual life. And then the Buddha said, do not speak in that way, Ananda. Do not speak in that way. Don't say good friendship is one half of the spiritual life, but rather good friendship is the entirety of the spiritual life because it's in dependence upon good friends that one gets to learn about the Noble Eightfold Path and in dependence on good friends that one learns how to develop all of those eight path factors from right view to right concentration. Okay, in this sutta, the Buddha speaks a little bit differently. He says you should, what is, he speaks, he's defining good friendship and says, what is good friendship? In this case, you should associate with those who are accomplished in four qualities, in faith, good behavior, generosity, and wisdom. Here the Buddha is speaking to a lay person, and so he's putting stress on these four qualities, which are the kind of four supports for a lay person to lead the spiritual life. Having faith or trust in the Dharma, observing the precepts in order to cultivate good behavior, being generous, and then developing wisdom. So associate with those who are accomplished in these qualities, converse with them and hold discussions with them, and then emulate them in respect to their faith, good behavior, generosity, and wisdom. Okay, I'm not going to continue to explain these two mangalas avoiding not to associate with fools, to associate with the wise. But I just want to point out, this is something for the details you can look up on your own, but there's this beautiful sutta called the Sigalika Sutta in the Dika Nikaya, the Long Discourses. This is sutta number 31, where the Buddha speaks about four foes, four people who are really your enemies, but they appear to be your friends. And when I read this, it strikes me just, it's so contemporary. 
you know, even though it's spoken some 2,500 years ago in ancient India, but it's things that we encounter in our everyday life right here in the 21st century. So the four foes in the guise of friends, the one who becomes friends with you to get possession, to take control of your possessions, the one who renders lip service, who says, oh, I will help you when you need this, I'll help you whenever you need me, just call me. Oh, and you call me, call that person. Oh, I'm sorry, but I'm engaged today. I have some other commitments and they're never ready to help you. The one who flatters you just to get some personal advantage from you. And then the one who brings you to ruin. Then each of these is elaborated, but I'm not going to go into the elaborations. And then we have the four who are called the genuine friends. This is the one who's the helpmate, the one who's ready to help you in times of trouble, the one who's the same in happiness and sorrow. When you are in a difficult situation, this friend shares your difficulty and is willing to help you to get out from that difficulty. And when you meet with good fortune, when you're happy, this one truly shares your happiness. And then it's the friend who gives good, wise counsel and the one who sympathizes with you in times of trouble. Okay, and then in this verse, the third mangala, the third blessing, is venerating those who are worthy of veneration, showing honor to those who are worthy of honor. And the reason for this, this mangala, is that now in that stage of gaining the proper orientation, we have to find the kinds of people who embody in their character the ideals towards which we aspire ourselves. And we take those people as our own models, the kinds of people that we try to emulate, even though we might not be able to do it perfectly, but it's sort of like setting a target, even though it might be a very distant target, but that person, those people, represent the ideals that I would like to achieve within myself. Well, those are the people who, we can say, serve as the pole star for the ideal life. And so within the Buddhist tradition, of course, the, people, the person that we pay the highest veneration to is the Buddha himself. And so we say that the Buddha is the one who, in his quest for Buddhahood, has fulfilled all the virtuous qualities, generosity, good conduct, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, determination, loving-kindness, compassion, equanimity. And so I might be very stingy, my conduct might be corrupted, 
I might have no interest in renunciation. I might be very foolish, very lazy, very impatient. No kindness at all towards others, easily upset. But then I encounter the Buddha Dharma. I learn about the Buddha. I have all of these problems, obstacles within myself, but I pay veneration to the Buddha. And so what I'm doing is I'm, with all of my faults, all of my problems, I'm changing my ideal in the direction of that represented by the Buddha. This might be a little bit like if one is trying to tune up a guitar and one doesn't have a good ear for the, what do you call this, is it pitch or tone? A good ear for pitch. So one takes a guitar which is already well-tuned and then one starts tuning one's own guitar against that well-tuned guitar. And so one pays homage or honor most of all to the Buddha. Then we pay homage, we use the expression Sangha in the sense, the conventional sense of Sangha is the monastic order. And so within Buddhist tradition, one pays homage to the monastic order. It doesn't mean that all of monks and nuns are model, ideal models of virtue, but the monastic order is sort of to be a symbolic representation of what is called the Aryan Sangha. The Aryan Sangha is the community of noble ones, those who have reached the different stages of enlightenment and realization. So one pays homage to the monastic order with the understanding that the monastics, first at the conventional level, are those who have renounced the household life in order to follow the Buddha, at least in theory, even if they're not doing so in practice. And then one does so taking the monastic order as symbolic representation of those who have reached, whether they're monks or lay people, who have practiced the Dharma to the stages of realization, and so who are living expressions of sila, samadhi, and panya, of virtuous conduct, concentration, and wisdom. And then within the social context of a Buddhist life, this is when traditional Buddhist societies, people pay homage, veneration to, this might say a, a, little, <laughs> a little strange to those of us who have been brought up in American culture, they pay homage to their parents, which is actually a very good practice because when you have generation after generation of children paying homage to their parents, then children know that when they grow up and become parents, they have to make themselves worthy of veneration from their children. So in this way, particularly in a Buddhist culture where the ideal codes of conduct for parents are passed down through the discourses by the monastics, so parents know how they should behave in relation to their children to make themselves worthy of veneration by their children. And then in the traditional Buddhist culture, students show veneration to their teachers. And there are specific ways of showing veneration, like the way we show homage to the Buddha, we bow down to the Buddha, we lower ourselves. And in the Buddhist culture, lay people, when they see 
monastics, they bow down to them. Parents bow down to their children. And within the monastic order, there's a kind of guideline that junior monks pay homage to senior monks. And this doesn't, this is determined completely on the basis of seniority. It has nothing to do with the individual virtues or spiritual status of the two respective monks. So I could be a really bad, corrupt monk. Venerable Sudasso here could be a really virtuous, saintly monk, even an arahat. But if I'm ordained earlier than he was, probably I was ordained before you were born. <laughs> what is your age? Your age? 30. Yeah, so I'm... <laughs> yeah, so he would pay homage to me, because I'm senior. And when I meet an elder monk, then I would pay homage to him. So this is determined completely on the basis of seniority. And even, it could be determined even by the same day. There was one time, right after I came back to the United States, 2002, I was visiting a friend who was living at a Thai monastery near Chicago. And there was the abbot, an elder Thai monk, who was senior to me, my friend who was junior to me. And then there was another Thai monk at the monastery who at that time, when I arrived, was not there. He had been traveling. And so when the seats were laid out in the dining hall, so I took the seat second to the abbot. Then when the the other resident monk, he returned the next day, and he looked young to me. So at breakfast, again, I took the seat right next to the abbot, and the visiting monk took the middle, the third, the middle seat, and my friend was the most junior, so he was at the end. But after the breakfast, I asked that monk who had just arrived, what year were you, because usually a practice is to ask another monk when we meet them for the first time. If it's not immediately obvious who's senior to who, we ask about the ordination year in order to know who should pay homage to whom. So I asked them, what year were you ordained? 1973. That's the year I was ordained. What month were you ordained? <laughs> he said, May. I was ordained in May. <laughs> what date in May were you ordained? He said, May 17th. And I said, I apologize, Bhante. I was presumptuous in taking the second seat. Please, at lunchtime, you sit here and let me pay homage to you. And I was ordained on May 20th and now there's a little bit irony that's not immediately obvious from that. Originally, my ordination date was scheduled for May 17th. <laughs> and I know why he was ordained on May 17th. Because in 1972, May 17th was the Vesak day, the day celebrating the birth, enlightenment, and passing away of the Buddha. And so originally, my teacher scheduled my ordination on May 17th, because it was Vesak day. But then, 
you realize that on Vesak day there'll be a, like a lot of activities going on. You know, because a lot of like celebration that people are invited, monks are invited to give lectures. And so he thought, let's postpone the ordination for a few days till Sunday. Sunday was May 20th when it would be more convenient, when there would be, there wouldn't be all of this hullabaloo and commotion. Now, if I was ordained on May 17th, then when meeting this visiting monk, I would have had to ask him, what time were you ordained? (laughs) Excuse me? No, it's still, yeah, I mean, it's both in Sri Lanka. Yeah, well, I was in Sri Lanka, he was in Thailand. Actually, there is also that. (laughs) Thailand, I think, is about an hour and a half earlier than Sri Lanka. <laughs> then we would have had to take, a, take account of the time. To... Okay, it's 11.31, so I think we should take the break and then come back after the break and continue. <laughs>